Hello, I'm Elder Greg Newman, and I want to welcome you to New Hope Fellowship Online. I want to thank you for tuning into this message. I hope and pray that it helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus and challenges you to study God's Word. If you'd like more information on who we are as a church, you are invited to nhfchurch.org. If you're interested in partnering with us financially to help us continue to share the gospel with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, I'm thankful that you are here listening, and I hope you enjoy this message. When our series, we're building towards what that video goes, Hebrews 12, that's sort of the capstone, you could say, of Hebrews, that after speaking about all we're going to cover through the first 11 chapters, chapter 12 is kind of this linchpin of the whole book that builds towards that. But we're in chapter 5, and we have to go backwards to go a little forward, and Pastor Greg did a great job last week in speaking on chapter 4. And so I want to start in verse 14 of chapter 4, which kind of gives a pretext for us. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We have this great high priest, and and the theme of Hebrews is he's greater than He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than Moses. And in chapter 4, he speaks to that Jesus, as a great high priest, can know us. He can sympathize with us. He can understand us well, because he's fully God and he's fully man. And at just the right time, it says in Philippians that Jesus sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, just like you and I, but without sin. And so because of that, verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And he's saying, because we have a high priest who can engage with us, understands us, then let us approach his throne with boldness. And if you know who you are, then you know what to do. It's a phrase I like to use. It's one that I've learned years ago. And it's that concept of who are we, New Hope? And if you read Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, it explains who you are. And if you know Jesus, you are a son or daughter of the Most High God, that you've been adopted into God's family. Therefore, as a son or daughter, you can go to God and say, Abba, Father. And so he goes here, kind of building on that premise of since we have that great high priest, since we are adopted in, let us then with confidence, or in some of your translations, we'll say with boldness, draw near the throne of grace, meaning we can go to God and ask anything at any point and at any time. And for some, I've had the phrase said to me, a pastor, I didn't want to bother you. I I know you're busy, so I don't want to talk to you about what's going on in my life. And to me, that's like, no, no. What's important to me as a pastor is people, is what is going on. That is why my role is here. You're not a bother to me as people. I want to engage with you. And in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is speaking in parables, and he's speaking of one, and this is a quick summary you can read later today. But Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he goes, the kingdom of God is something like this. He goes, there's a man that goes to sleep, and his neighbor's next door, and he's asleep. But his neighbor is awakened by friends who show up in the middle of the night. And he needs to, hospitality says, you have to feed them. And so they've come in. So the man goes to his neighbor and starts knocking. And it doesn't make any, like, okay, you ring the doorbell, no big deal in houses like today. The problem is houses today have a room for every child or every parent Back in the day, you maybe had a couple of rooms, and everyone slept in the same room. So when you go to bed, it's mom, it's dad, it's the kids. So when you go to bed, everybody goes to bed. And when you get the little kids to sleep, you want to keep them asleep. So if in the middle of the night, someone comes over and starts to knock and make noise, 
if you're a parent, you're like, dude, zip it. Like the kids are going to wake up. I have to get them back to sleep. I'm going to lose sleep because of this. And so the guy's knocking and the dad's like, go away, go away. Everyone's gone to bed. The lights are out. I can't see. I might stub my toe. And the guy's like, no, no, listen, I have people that I need to feed and you have the supplies that I need. So he keeps knocking. And because of his incessant knocking, the dad gets up, gets the food and says, okay, now go away. And Jesus goes, likewise, you're to do the same to your heavenly father. Keep knocking, keep asking, keep petitioning because you're not a bother. And we sometimes think if I keep bringing this to God, if I keep saying this, if I keep bringing this up, I'm an annoyance. It's the question of, I have a four-year-old and two-year-old. Why? 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 And it's like we, we think that's what we're doing to God. And God says, no, I see you and I want to hear it. And so the author of Hebrews at the end of chapter four is saying, we have someone who gets us, who gets our weaknesses, who gets when we're tired, who gets when we're just at our wit's end or we're stressed or we have this thought and we're trying to figure out what's next. He understands. And so let us approach with boldness because we have this high priest and ask and keep on asking. And so it gets into chapter five of, he goes, well, let me remind you then what this high priest does, what the character traits of a high priest, what they're supposed to embody. And what you have to keep in mind is that at this point, really, in Jesus's day, one commentator writes, the priesthood has become a corrupt institution. The office was gained through intrigue and politicking among corrupt leaders. Sounds a lot like our present culture in the world that we live in with politics. You're supposed to have this servant attitude. And in this day and in this period, the high priest was gained by how much money, how, who do I pay off, who's the most popular, not how it was supposed to be. And so he goes, let me remind you what the high priest was supposed to be like. And he reads in chapter 5 and verse 1, it goes, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So there's four things that are taking place that he's trying to explain to remind the church as they're wrestling with persecution, as they're wrestling with this ostracization, because you got to remember the church is made up of mostly Jews. And the Jews encompass in the Roman Empire about 10% of the total population. Okay, that's entirely through the entire Roman Empire. So you're already, if you're a Jew, you're kind of out of pocket. You don't fit the norm. You don't worship other gods. You are a monotheistic religion and faith. And so when you live in different cities, your culture and your community is kind of like here, your church. It was a synagogue. And if you were a Jew who then comes to know Christ, you're already kind of ostracized because you don't follow culture and you live differently. Well, then as you become a Christian, you're kicked out of the synagogue. And so now your family, your community, you were kicked out of it. For some people, that was kicked out of your family, which means you have a handful of people that you're around. We would be considered pretty much a mega church to the early church because most were in houses and they could fit maybe 10, 15 people. And so you go from a community, maybe a couple hundred to now down to 10, and maybe you've lost your family because you can't go home because you believe in Christ. And so Hebrews, the guy is seeing this, the author is writing to the church saying, I see your pain. I see why you want to compromise in your faith. But let me tell you how great Jesus is. Let me remind you 
of who you're following and why he is greater than all of these other things. And let me remind you, because he is our high priest, what is the high priest supposed to be like? And the first is he's appointed to act as a mediator between God and man. He's a mediator. He's a neutral party. Some of us have had arguments with people, right? Maybe a spouse or maybe a friend, or you get to a point where you cannot see eye to eye and you need a neutral party to come in and mediate, who comes and says, okay, I, I hear this, I hear this, and it can explain to both parties what the other's position is in terms and understanding they can comprehend. Why? So that they can come to a resolution and an agreement and move forward. And so he's appointed to act as a mediator between God and man, saying that God desires this. God has his rules. God has his what he needs. I get that. Man has his needs. I get that. And so then can make, a, make gifts and sacrifices to God for man, to kind of be that mediator between God and man. That's the first. The second, he can associate with the wayward, the prodigal. Why? Because he gets them. He gets where they're at. He goes and he says, it says specifically, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, verse 2, since he himself is beset with weakness. He can be kind to people who have walked away from their faith. He can be kind to those who are ignorant because he knows how God has dealt with him and is gentle with him. And because of his experience with God, he can then have empathy towards others who are angry with God, who are frustrated with God, who are walking away from God because he sees them how God sees them. They are valuable. You read Psalm 139, it says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knit us together in our mother's womb. It's not happenstance. It takes nine months, typically average, some are earlier, some are a little later, babies to be born. As God pieces together the hair, the eye color, the personality, all of those things God fearfully and wonderfully has made us. And the high priest understands that and because he has been dealt with by God in such a gracious and tender manner, he can look at people and say, I see why you're hurt. I see why you're this way. And he deals gently with them. He doesn't bash them and say, get your stuff together, get your junk together, and then you come back. He doesn't read them the right act. He's supposed to deal gently with humility, with meekness, not weakness, meekness towards others. He's kind. That's what he's supposed to do with all of those who are rude, who are arrogant, because he has his own weaknesses and he can relate and he understands. He offers sacrifices first for his own sin, then for others. The high priest recognizes he's a sinner in the human term of it. And so he knows I need to first confess my sins and make a sacrifice for that. Then I can make a sacrifice for others. I first deal with what's going on here in my heart, and then I go and deal with it for others. And it was a beautiful display to model that. And he's appointed, meaning he's chosen by God. It's not a popularity contest. It's not the who's who. It's not who has the best grades or who has the best understanding of Scripture. It's God's chosen is the high priest. And in Jesus' day, it was basically who could you bribe? Who could you pick off to take this title just as Aaron, and who is Aaron? Some of us know, I have a friend named Aaron. Is that who we're talking about? No. Aaron is Moses' brother. And if you were to look at history, we looked at Moses a few weeks ago. Aaron is Moses' brother. Moses was who led the people out of Egypt. Moses, Jesus is greater than Moses. And Jesus specifically said about Moses, I speak to him. All the other prophets, I speak in dreams or visions. But with Moses, I speak words just as I'm speaking to you. 
and yet Jesus is greater, and Aaron was his brother, basically his spokesperson. And because that doesn't really, in our Western culture, say, okay, that's great, Nick. I don't really understand why that is such a big deal and why the author would spend some time here. And you have to remember, the Scripture was not written to us, it's written for us. And so there's things in here that this was a letter to certain people who had certain understandings of Scripture, certain beliefs that we may not understand and comprehend. So we have another slide. I'm going to go ahead and pull that slide up just to kind of explain the history. So you have your top Abraham, who was the patriarch, okay? He was who God called in Genesis. You read the first 10 chapters. It's kind of a fly-by history. And then you start to see Abraham come on the scene. He's chosen out of the land of Iraq area to come out into the land of where is modern-day Israel. He has a son of promise named Isaac. There's two sons, if you read through Genesis, another one named Ishmael. He is not the son of promise. There's stuff there we'll get into later. But Isaac is the chosen. Isaac means laughter because Sarah had him at close to 100 years old. And you women who are mothers, grandmothers, can you imagine at 100 giving birth? And so Isaac is laughter because what, are you kidding me? And with God, there is nothing that is impossible. And from Isaac, there is, he has twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is kind of a, he's a unique bird. Jacob is kind of a thief in some ways. He wrestles with God and some of us can relate to him and we will spend a whole series on him. But he stole his brother's birthright, Esau, who was a twin. And Jacob is the one who God blesses. And you can think, well, Jacob, he stole. You read his story. He wrestles. He really isn't like a straight shooter of a guy. And yet we're going to see in Hebrews, he's listed in the hall of faith. Because there's something about him that even though he doesn't get it all right, there is a heart issue that does get it right. And so Jacob has his 12 sons, which are up there on the screen. Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Ben. It's Benjamin, but it didn't fit across, so it's Ben. (laughs) So these are the 12, and if you look at Jacob's story, these are from four different women. And you would say, wait a minute, doesn't God about one man, one woman for life? Yes, you realize that people don't always follow what God says, and yet God still uses people. And so the first two, Reuben, should have been the firstborn, which he is. He should have had the blessing of the firstborn, which he doesn't. And because of that, he actually is disqualified. And that's in Genesis 35. The second one is where he, you find, read about his disqualification. He sleeps with his father's concubine. And so from that point on, he loses his blessing. And he's kind of kicked out of the firstborn blessing. And if you're in this period of time of history, of patriarch history, then the firstborn, you kind of, if you were firstborn man as a male, life was great. You inherited pretty much everything. And so Reuben kind of reneges on his entire blessing and his entire inheritance. So it goes to the next, Simon, who also loses the firstborn privileges and the firstborn blessing. Him and Levi do a deed that you can read about, and that's there in Genesis 34. Their sister is pretty much, she's raped, and they take charge, and they're offended, and they end up killing an entire city of males. And you can read about their treachery and their history and what they did. And so Simon is disqualified. Levi ends up redeeming himself. He's a third-born child. And from the tribe of Levi, you actually get the priesthood. And so because Levi and Simon work together, they lose it. And so Judah, my son's name, he becomes the firstborn, you would say, and the firstborn's blessing. And so we go ahead to the next slide. Here it is. What you see in what God does is that Levi, because he's redeemed, he becomes the priestly line. So all of the priesthood in all of Israel's history, all through the Old Testament, 
come from the tribe of Levi. That's how it's supposed to work. Aaron, Moses' brother, is from the tribe of, you guessed it, Levi. And so the oldest son is always the high priest. And from Levi, he had three sons, and those three sons have specific tasks that they do in the temple. Certain ones are the high priests. Certain ones deal with the materials around, and other ones deal with the animals and sacrifices. But the oldest son would become the high priest from the tribe of Judah. This is the line of kings. This is King David. This is King Solomon. This is where the kings come from. There is a first king named Saul who's from the tribe of Benjamin, and Saul loses his blessing and goes back to Judah through David, which is where the promise was to begin with. And I give all this history because the the understanding is that when you read Hebrews, whoever received this letter would have known this. Why is that a big deal? Because the Lion of Judah, the king, does not mix with the priesthood. The priesthood is separate entity altogether. In fact, when when God gave the portions of the land out, when Moses led the people out of Egypt and Joshua takes them into the promised land, there is an allotment of land for every tribe that's up there, except for Levi. And Reuben, because of his issues, he actually morphs into Judah. They form into really one tribe, and Reuben is kind of lost. But Levi doesn't have any land allotment. They're the priest. They're supposed to bless all of the other tribes. They're supposed to kind of keep the moral compass. They're supposed to be the pastors, you would say, of the day, to guide, to teach, to empower, to equip the people to follow after God. And once a year, they would rally to Jerusalem for the Day of Atonement to celebrate, and the high priest, who was supposed to have all the character traits that a pastor should of humility, of meekness, of graciousness, tenderness, kindness, the high priest was supposed to emulate and model that. And so he is saying, for every high priest, I'm going to remind you who this high priest is, what they are about. Let me explain this to you, and then let me tell you that God became fully human so you can approach God. And it says in the very next verse of chapter 5, so also, after he explains the high priest, just as Aaron was in the high priest, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, meaning he didn't go for it. He didn't have a popularity contest to vote on it. He said he was appointed by him who said to him, in Psalms it reads this, you are my son today, I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that big name Melchizedek, we're going to get into in later chapters, chapter 7, we're going to have fun with Melchizedek. But Aaron was the priesthood. And what the author is showing his followers, the followers of Christ who are kind of compromising, who are kind of saying, maybe I should go back. Maybe I should just leave my faith or agree to parts. He's reminding them that Jesus's lineage and his priesthood doesn't come from Aaron, the Levite tribe. It comes from Melchizedek. Who in the world is Melchizedek? We talked about him a few weeks ago. But in Genesis, Abraham rescues his nephew Lot, and he goes to what is the current city of Jerusalem called Salem. And there he meets a man called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is described in Genesis as both king and high priest, the first high priest to God. It's also where Abraham gave a tenth of his stuff from the battle that he won and rescued Lot, and that's where you get the tenth for the tithe, and that's where it all starts to develop from there. But Melchizedek is there, so that at this point in time, Jesus' lineage doesn't trace back to Aaron. No, he's from the tribe of Judah, which is where the Messiah was, was prophesied to come from. And just like he's the king, he is now also the high priest, one and the same. 
One commentator, so if you're a Jew who's reading this, who's a convert to Christianity, this is mind-blowing of realization of these two should not mix, and now they're being mixed. He writes, Kent Hughes, his royal office was prophesied in Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you, which in the mind of the writer of Hebrews refers to Christ's enthronement as both Lord and Christ. This is an implicit statement that Jesus is the eternal king. Jesus' priestly office was prophesied, says writer in Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This was a bombshell statement to his hearers because while Psalm 110 had been applied to Christ by others, this is the first time Jesus was ever identified with the mysterious priesthood of Melchizedek. Not only that, but Psalm 110 now becomes the virtual theme, the text of the heart of the letter of Hebrews. It is especially important here to realize that Melchizedek, according to Genesis 14, was both king and priest of God Most High. So our author gives us a stupendous truth. Jesus is both eternal king and the eternal priest, and it all came to him by the ordaining word of God the Father. Jesus did not seek it. Just as, his, just as in eternity, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Philippians 2. Neither did he clutch the office of king and high priest. His only goal, Jesus' only goal, was to glorify God the Father. Jesus' priesthood is therefore far superior to that of Aaron. Aaron's was temporal. Jesus is a priest of the same kind of Melchizedek. There was no succession of priests and hence no order from Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood is without ending and beginning. And it's this mind-altering, earth-shattering statement that the people reminded, this is what the high priest is supposed to be, and Jesus is it. And it's just, wait, these two shouldn't meet, but it does. And it's to inflame and encourage the church. You have someone who is greater than everything. And he, you have faith in him and you can approach with boldness. This high priest can relate to you. He understands you. In verse 7, it says, In the days of flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so Jesus says, in the days of his flesh, while he was here on earth, fully God, fully man, he offered up prayers. You read through the Gospels, and every time the disciples are like, where is he in the morning? Well, he's away. He's tuning up, you could say, with God, in sync with him, sinking to know what is God's will? What does God have for me today? It's why God says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems of its own. And when you spend time in prayer, you get to sync with what does God want? Because you don't know what the day is going to bring. Or maybe you're more of a night owl like me, and it's praying at the end of the day for what is to come the next day. It's taking that time, and God said, you need that time. Jesus took that time, and if Jesus, who is our high priest to his king, if he took the time, then we also need to take our time. And you read that in Mark chapter 1, that after Jesus kind of heals in the synagogue someone who has an unclean spirit, and the whole town begins to flock to him, and he heals the sick and the lame all night long on a Saturday night. Sunday comes, the first day of the work week, and they're lined up out the door, and the disciples go, where is he? And then Peter goes and says, hey, the whole town is here. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. And they're like, what? We could have celebrity status. We could be all of these things. And Jesus is like, that's not my mission. That's not what I'm here for. It's not the celebrity status. It's not the popularity contest. It's to go and teach the good news. And these people are here to see the miracles, but they're not here for the heart. 
Where did they find Jesus? Well, he was after all night being with the people, after having taught in synagogue Saturday morning, after healing Peter's mom that afternoon, after healing people all night long. At some time in the morning, while it was still dark, it says he left. He got up and he prayed. And he got in tune with what God the Father wanted. And just like here in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries to him, God, who was able to save him, his father. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, though he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. And being made perfect in verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It goes back to chapter 4, what we just read in verse 14. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation, meaning Jesus, as he is in heaven, stands between you and God as a mediator, petitioning God on your behalf, on my behalf, of what we have need of for him to say before God the Father, Nick's praying this. I get it, Dad. I've been there. I've been in tears. I've been in whatever's going on. He would say it the same to you. I see them, God, and I know they need this. Remember, I'm, I get the weakness. I get the mortality. I get all of this because I was in their shoes. Jesus' prayer was for unity before he left, and as he stays in heaven, sometimes we don't have words for our prayers. In Romans, it speaks to this. Sometimes we just have utterances. That sometimes going on, whether it's I'm in shame or I'm in uh, deep despair or I'm in deep grief, we just cry out in utterance. And it says the Holy Spirit gives words to that utterance, and Jesus is then able to interpret those words to his heavenly Father to give us exactly what we need. Not what we want, but what we need. And so he's reminding them that you and I, God became fully human in Jesus, so we can approach God freely as ourselves with confidence and constantly, at all times and in all places, we can always go to God freely as ourselves and with confidence. And with that truth in mind, you have two ways to look at this. The truth of who we are, which causes separation from God and guilt and shame. The truth that if I come to God freely as myself, does he know what I've done? Does he know what I've said? Does he know all of these things about me? Yes. And it becomes, and sometimes it's, how can I ask God for these things when I've done X? How can I go to God and ask for blessing when I've experienced this? God must hate me. God must be punishing me. And we have this guilt and shame that gets built up when we know this truth. Or we can look at it this way, that the truth of how God sees us, which brings us relationship with God and grace and mercy. And we can choose to say and look at it from the truth of, though I am this, God does not see me as a filthy, rotten, no-good, lousy sinner. The moment I'm saved, he sees me as a son or daughter of the Most High God. Therefore, my relationship with God is built on grace and mercy, and I can approach with boldness because he can associate with my weakness and knows what I've faced and knows what I'm up against, and he can display grace. And grace is God's riches at Christ's expense that why can we have a relationship with God the Father? Because of what Christ did on the cross. And he didn't just stay dead, he rose from the dead, so he defeated death and therefore gives us that opportunity to know the Heavenly Father, to then be made in his likeness and his image to that while we are here on earth, you've got a role to play. Until you're dead and in heaven with God, you have a purpose. And that might be saying, okay, I'm just a prayer warrior. Well, okay, that's a big deal. We tend to put that at the bottom of the rung, and it's like, that should be at the top of the rung, prayer warriors. 
And you can say at 80, I've got nothing to do. And at 80, God used Moses to lead his people out of Egypt for 40 years around the desert, 80 to 120. You think about that. And you can think, well, I don't have much influence. I just know five or 10 people. I stay at home. Well, you have influence over your family. You have influence over your community. You can say, I'm just a bus driver. I'm just a janitor. Well, God's called you to provide for your family. God's called you to those areas to be a witness and ambassador in those spheres of influence. And in what he hands you with the little, sometimes it grows over the length of time. And so you choose to look at what I am and what I've been can separate me from God with guilt and shame, or I can see the truth of how God truly sees me. That not as a filthy, rotten, ugly, lousy sinner, which is what Satan will tell you over and over. And as you go through hardships and trials, the easiest thing to do is isolate, pull yourself away. Why? Because people are going to ask. And you're afraid if you're honest with them, they're not going to look at you or love you or care for you. So we isolate, we pull back, we pull back. And God says, don't do that. I see that. Trust me, lean into it. And let me show you grace and mercy. And I think the author of Hebrews says all this to encourage his readers because then he gives a kind of the carrot and the stick and he gives the stick next. Because the next part, he goes to a detour. In 5 verse 11, he says, about this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing He chastises the church. This is where he gets into his last point. He gives this warning about our spirituality. He wants to go into more. He wants to share more. He wants to go to the depth side of the faith to explain this comprehension. And instead, he can't. He says about this, we have much to say. We have much to teach and to show. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He wants to give a pep talk. And so he kind of has a coach at this point. You can think of a coach that if the first half, if you're in playing football, you have a first quarter, second quarter, and then you have halftime, you come back. And some teams come out at halftime, and they played so bad the first half, they come out with some new, renewed energy and vigor, and they win the game. And I think that's what somewhat the author is trying to do here, is that pep talk of, church, you've been flailing this first half of the game. You've not been really stepping up into it. And we have lots to say, but you've become dull. You should be growing, it says in the very next verse, verse 12, for though you by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. It's basically calling them babies. Babies need milk. And he's like, that's what you are right now, church, because your ears, you've become dull. Instead of being disciplined, instead of going, you're failing to thrive. You should be teaching, but you're not. You're just a child. You should be older. You should be maturing in your faith. I have lots to say and teach you on this, but church, I can't because you don't understand and you're not ready for it. And it's a challenge really to us too. Remember, this letter is not written to us. It's written for us of the reminder that some of us have walked with God for a very long time. And I would ask, where is your maturity at? Where is that at? Do you love God more now than when you first came to know him or has that faded with time? And what he's challenging here is saying it shouldn't have faded. It should be fanning into flame. It should be growing. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things should be more and more manifested in your life. Generosity should be seen in your life more and more, not just in your money, but as you deal with people, and when you deal with your authority, when you deal with your power, your possessions, you should be ever more generous. And he's saying, I have lots to say, but you become dull. Instead of disciplining yourself and consistency in it, Because new hope, faithfulness isn't glamorous. Sometimes it's the mundane. It's doing the same thing consistently over a long period of time that brings out that fruit, that brings out that what God is trying to do. And sometimes the seasons of life you're in are there to grow you and shape you. It's not the why. 
You can ask, why am I going through this? Why am I in this season? That's great. What is God teaching you in this season? What does he have for you? What is he showing you in the midst of this? And he's chastising this church to say, you're a child. I have to give you, spoon feed you, because I can't go into the depth and the understanding and comprehension because your ears, you, you don't understand. And though you should be ready at this point, you're not. And he goes further, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You learn God's will and you know God's will the more you're in God's word. It becomes natural as breathing to know what's the next right thing to do. But the less time you spend in God's word, the less time you spend with them, the less time you spend at church, the less time you spend around other Christians, the more and more hard it is to know what's the right thing to do. What's the next thing to do? And he's giving us a warning, and he's going to go into a whole chapter. That's what we'll get next week of chapter 6 of this whole, they've wandered away. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of they've just sort of that slow fade. It's a great old song from Casting Grounds. It's called A Slow Fade, where you slowly drift and slowly get away. Tomorrow doesn't look any different. Next week doesn't look any different. Next month, next year, two years, five years, and then 10 years, it looks drastically different. Because over the 10-year period, you've slowly just faded and your light has begun to dim. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Don't let your light dim. So let me, he goes in to explain this. So what does that mean for you and I? Well, it means it starts with obeying what we know. How do we not go into the drifting? Well, you're like, I don't know everything. I can't know everything. You, you don't. And I don't know everything. I'm a pastor. And I don't know everything how this works. But the truth about it is start with obeying with what you know. What you know is right. What you know to do in this situation. What you know to do with this person. Whatever the next step is, you do. Scripture says it's a light unto my path. It's a lamp unto my feet. Meaning, it tells you what the next step is. Not what the mile looks like ahead of you. Not what the hill that's coming up ahead. Not the turn to the right or left. It's next step, next step. Hindsight's twenty twenty, But it starts with obeying what we know. And it's a never-ending process. Truth is, I'm still growing. I will never achieve perfection here this side of heaven until I get to heaven. I'm going to grow. I'm going to learn just as you are going to grow, just as you are going to learn. And if you don't learn the lesson, I promise God will bring it right back around. You're going to learn it again. So you can run from one one way and then all of a sudden find yourself, wow, this is really similar to what I faced. It's like, well, you must not have learned the lesson. Or God wants to teach you something different now through it. You've learned it. And again, those seasons, sometimes a week, sometimes a month, sometimes years, I'm in an early fatherhood, which means I'm in a season of life that I'm going to have, it'll come to an end and I'll have more and more freedom as my kids age, but I'm in a season of life. There's things to learn in this season. You are also in a season of life and a spiritual growth. And we're all at different levels. The point is not to become stagnant and to just stay put and to just be okay with okay. And a good start doesn't mean a good ending. It matters how you finish the race. It matters how you end. It matters how you die, if you want to put in a blank, black and white. You read the book of Judges, you read about Samson, and Samson started so well, he ended so poorly. And he had stuff along the way, and that's our own lives. It matters how we finish in every walk of life, from the job you're in to the parenting side of things as you kids grow out of the house and as they launch into adulthood. It matters how that ends. It matters how your grandparents parent as well, because you grandparents have a special role 
and the lives of your kids. It matters how I end my role as pastor. So last week I got to speak up in New York at my old church, it's been two years, and it was well received. I'm not going back, I'm not, God's not called me, God called me here. But it was fun to see and remember and to see the joy. I would not be able to do that if it didn't end well. They would not be jumping in with our Grow With New Hope initiative to support us at Christmas Eve if it didn't end well. And yet it ended well. And so they want to fan in the flame and they want to encourage us along in our walk and our growth as a church as well. A good start doesn't mean it's going to end well. There's, the world is full of pastors who have failed and the world loves it when we fail and it's all over media and social stuff. There's a whole lot of pastors, a whole lot of churches that have ended very well. You don't always hear about them. And it's never too late to start. As the truth is, for some of us, we're like, well, I'm a little too far gone. I'm a little this. You're never too far. And where it says in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, today, if the Spirit calls me, don't wait till tomorrow. Some of us are like, well, I'm going to start this new diet on Monday. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm going to binge eat my favorite food. I'm like that, for the record. Like Monday, I'll start. Monday, I'll go to the gym. On New Year's, I'll start this. It's like, no, start today. Start today. And just saying, God, I see you. God, I know this. And I'm not going to get it all together at once. It's one day at a time. You're not looking for perfection, new hope. You'll never get to it. It's just getting better. It's what my one friend said. It's Kaizen. I'm like, what is that? He goes, it's a Japanese word in business that means ever improving. You want to be that ever-improving Christian. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Where are you at? And church, I'd love to share more with you, but I can't. And so let me just chastise you and just kind of pep talk you as a coach would. Of you have just, you have all this immense talent and potential, and you have just flubbed it and are not focused and are not on task. And so he does that next week, and we'll look at that in chapter six. And so my question this week as you go about your life and your walk with Christ. Where are you? And if you walk with Jesus for a length of time, where is that love for him at? And be honest with yourself. God sees it. God knows it. Is it improving or has it just become stagnant? If it's become stagnant, what are you going to do about it? What does that look like in your world to dive into Scripture with Christ and to be a part? Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful to be gathered here in your name. It is not about us, Jesus. It is about your son. It is about what you have done for us to know, Lord, that you see us just as we are and meet us right where we are to live in the world that you have called us. And you have called, Lord, us here to be your witnesses and ambassadors, to entrust us even in our finite and our messy lives that you'd still choose to use us to be your ambassadors to the world around us. So you've asked New Hope, Lord, to be your ambassador, to be a beacon of hope and light to the city of Westminster and Tawnytown and beyond. You've called these people who are here, Lord, this morning, those online, those who will listen to the week, those that aren't here with us present today, but are part of New Hope, to be your ambassadors in their families, in their communities, in their neighborhoods, to be your witnesses. And so we ask, Jesus, that we would step up to the challenge, that we would recognize we can come to you with boldness and ask for anything, and it'll be granted to us. And Lord, we know that you, as you give us grace and as you give us mercy, allow us to display that. Give us wisdom this week, Jesus, to know where do we make the next step in our own faith walk. We need to spend a little more time in our scripture, a little more time praying, a little more time being kind to our spouse, kind to our kids. We need to be a little more kind if we're in positions of authority and power to those who, who are serving underneath us. And Lord, would you grow our hearts? 
Would you allow them to be soft and pliable and not hard as Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but would you soften our hearts to lean into you, to become your ambassadors, to understand you see us where we're at so that we would come to love you more and that we would share that love with those around us, the people as they interact with people from New Hope. They say, there's, a, there's just different. There's something unique about them and for us to be bold and share our faith, but to meet people where they're at, to love them just as you love them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.